there's a stronger statement than even that is that that faith is obeying God regardless of personal consequences. Yes. I'm going to do what God calls me to do, even if it takes me to my death. I'm going to do what God calls me to do. Even in the terror of the moment, he will take it and make it something important that changes the lives, not only of my, of my own life, but the lives of the people around me. Welcome to the CDM Podcast, a production of Contagious Disciple Making. We exist to catalyze movement through coaching, community, and communication. We created this podcast to help everyday Christians become world-changing disciple-makers. Thank you and welcome to the CDM Podcast. Like, share, five-star, rate, and review this podcast. You can listen to our full premium content by becoming a $5 a month supporter on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash faithworks. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash faithworks. Or click the link in the description. To those of you who support this podcast, thank you. Your support helps us put tools in the hands of men and women like you who want to experience a disciple-making movement in their own neighborhood. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Um, David Watson is here with us today. And we're excited to hear from him. And we're going to be talking about a clandestine mission in light of everything that's been happening lately with the Middle East and the reality of how it's going to shift and change what we need to do and how we need to go about seeking the kingdom in these areas and to also help these particular areas. David, as I understand, this has been no new thing to you so far as having to work in clandestine missions. No, I actually started working clandestine missions in 1985. And uh, by 1989, I was deeply involved in clandestine missions uh, in, in restricted access countries where missionaries were, were not only uh, not given visas, but were actually actively sought after by the government in order to imprison and sometimes expel. So yeah, I've been, I've been doing this for a long time. And it's, it's a, it's an entire area of missions that most churchmen are not aware of. Mm-hmm. Right. And so everything that's been happening right now with the Middle East, the, the Taliban, all the stuff that is as erupting right now in the country, I can tell you, you know, so many people are just gutted by this situation um, and especially the useless nature of it, uh, of it, of how it has happened, how it has all gone down. You know, how are you seeing this in light of what's what to be what is currently happening, and also what is to expect it in the future? The the first thing to recognize about uh, anything in the Middle East is that everything operates on relational knowledge. If if you're not known, if you haven't had experience in the area, then you're not going to be trusted, and you're not going to be led into these networks. And even though we have a, a lot of uh, special forces guys and rangers and others who are coming in to help, they are not particularly known inside the clandestine mission community, though some of us know quite a few uh, special forces guys. It's still, it's still difficult for anyone coming in from the outside to make the contact necessary to move the Christians who are at risk out of the Middle East and particularly out of Afghanistan at this point in time. My first contact with the Taliban was in 1991. And uh, I was working uh, in, their, in their capital city at that time. 
and, and trying to help uh, build relationships into that group of people. And, and we failed. I mean, we spent two years working there and never got, never got past the front door basically to, to get to know people and build relationships with people because regardless in, in a tribal society that is at war, they trust only themselves. They don't mm-hmm. trust anyone else. And, and regardless of how much time and energy you can put into trying to get to know them, it, it takes a lot of time and energy and money to, to be able to become a part of a network that relates to these kind of organizations. And that's, that's part of what we're dealing with right now. Even, even for us trying to move Christians out of Afghanistan, we're dealing with uh, the whole idea. Do we know these people? Mm-hmm. They, could, they could be saying they're Christians and, and we have no way. So part of what we're doing now, we're working with organizations to vet these people, say we know these people, we trust these people, and, and we're asking you to help them move out of Afghanistan into other places. And these are always uh, sensitive relationships. They always take time. So when you, it's not like you, you buy your bus ticket and get on a bus and, and right. five hours later, you want to, you're going to be somewhere. It's you're vetted. Once you're vetted, you get into a safe house area from a safe house area. Then you're going to move from safe house to safe house, basically in an underground railroad type system that takes months sometimes to get out of the country, not weeks and certainly right. not days and no way hours. So this is, this is not like a government trying to swoop in and, and recover people. These are private citizens who are risking life and, and, and imprisonment in order to help uh, Afghans who need to be out of their country to get out of their country. And, and this is dangerous. And there's a lot of us who've been working this kind of situation for many years. And we have uh, become persona non grata in some countries as a result of that. And yet we continue to work and continue to maintain networks so that we can move people. And, and of course, move people not only out of these countries, but move the gospel into these countries. And that's the thing that we, we really, right now, we're, we're moving high-risk people out of the country. But at the same time, we're moving the gospel into the country to those who are marginal or have no gospel at this point in time. So how are you... Or how does one vet people then in this kind of a situation? Well, if they're Christians, they've worked with Christian churches of some kind. They've worked with missionaries of some kind, and they're going to be vouched for by either Western missionaries or Asian missionaries or South American missionaries. Or I mean, there's lots of different kinds of missionaries that are working in these areas. And, and many of them are lay people who took jobs in those areas in order to take the gospel into those areas. And as, we, as they are vetted, then they are, they, they are moved into a network. And that network is a trusted network of we know, we know these people, we know these people, we know these people, we don't know these people, but maybe we know someone who knows those people. And we have to, we have to keep working around our contacts till we get a yes from our contacts. Yes, we know this person. Yes, we've worked with this person. Yes, they are safe for us to work with at this point in time and move from there. Uh, But then you've got things like Western missionaries who are at risk 
and did not get out through the governmental exit system. Right. And, and we're, so there we're are moving. Western missionaries in there. Oh, still. absolutely. Not only that, there's Asian missionaries from, from various countries throughout Asia. We, we've got a matter of fact, there's a lot of Asian missionaries that are, that are stranded in Afghanistan right now. And working those people out is a different, different problem than, than working out a, uh, than Afghans because Afghans can always move and be moved by Afghans and be seen as Afghans and not as anything else, but someone going to see their family or someone moving to another city or whatever it might be. But if you're an outsider, whether you're Asian or, or Caucasian or African or whatever it might be that you came from, moving those people are much more high risk. So obviously uh, they look different than everyone else. Absolutely. Even, even if you put on the turban and grow a beard, you look different. I mean, I'm not going to pass for a even though I have a beard and I'm not going to pass for a Afghani. I'm not going to. Mm-hmm. And of course I'm not physically capable of even doing that kind of work these days, but, but uh, there are certainly, there are certainly a lot of people who can pass for Afghani. Their language is good. Their, their cultural moves are normal, and, but they still are at higher risk than an Afghan would be. Right. And those, those are the, those are the things we're working with. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to, Americans who've lived 25 years in, in Afghanistan now, and, and they still feel confident and comfortable moving, uh, as confident and comfortable as you can move in an environment where there's checkpoints every few miles by people who are unhappy. And those are, those are the things that, that we're having to, to look at and deal with. The same way we're having difficulty moving people out, we had that same difficulty moving the gospel in. I was about ready to ask that, David, you know, you said that's your dual plan, you know, getting people out, be it bringing the gospel in. So how have you done that in the past? And what are the plans now of trying to be able to do that now? Well, I'm not sure I can go into the plans of how we're going to do that now. I can go into (laughs) broad, broad strokes about what is done. Mm-hmm. And it's all, it's all built on, on timing, relationships, and what, what business platform or medical platform or whatever it is that's educational platform that have gotten you in. Uh, I've, I've worked and lived in, in places as, as a businessman. I've worked and lived in places as a university professor. I've worked and, and lived in, in places as a consultant. I mean, I, I've, I've had a lot of different roles that are real roles, real companies, real, real business. But, but that was what got me into the country. That was the message I took into the country. Right. And, and then you, you have to work those jobs and you have to, and you have to show income. And, and then you have to be able to also say, I'm going to move in the community and I'm going to be conspicuously religious or not conspicuously religious, conspicuously spiritual and put religion to the side mm-hmm. and say, look, I, I'm a spiritual person. You're a spiritual person. Can we just talk about spiritual things and move through that kind of avenue rather than I'm trying to convert you. I'm trying to change your worldview. I'm trying to do all these kind of things. And you find that uh, people are open to talk in spiritual matters, particularly in, in the Middle East. Everybody talks about spiritual matters in the Middle East. And they're always curious about someone else's spiritual worldview. And you can start those kind of conversations 
and, and lead those conversations into looking at the Quran, looking at the Bible, looking at the Torah, the Injil. You can, you can look at all kinds of places and have common discussions without a lot of stress, actually. And that's, that's, it's really refreshing to, to work in environments where people don't freak out if you bring up spiritual things. It's actually harder to talk about spiritual things in North America than it is to talk about spiritual things in the Middle East. Um, because in the Middle East, daily talking about spiritual things is normal. So it, it, what in these types of conversations over there, you know, do you, it, what you're referring to just for the listeners is that you're referring to, instead of trying to be confrontive of, I'm trying to talk you out of being a Muslim or something like that. It's just having discussions over passages of scripture or, or a, a, on a spiritual topic from um, the scriptures. Yeah. One well, of the what most- would that look like? Yeah, one of the most fascinating, fascinating passages in the Bible for me is, is John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45. And basically, Jesus said, it is God who draws people to me. And most of us who have been trained as missionaries have been trained in, in an incarnational model, say so we are representing God. And yet Jesus said, it's God who draws people to me, not, not apostles, not prophets, not evangelists. It's God who draw people to me. That's the first thing we have to understand. If God is not in this, it's not going to work. The second thing that it says in that same passage is that everyone who listens and learns from God will come to Christ. Mm -hmm. That's a very bold statement. Everyone, a superlative, who listens and learns from Christ will come to, will listen and, and learns from God will come to Christ. That's an incredibly bold statement made by John. Mm-hmm. In, in the gospel, and yet I found it to be true, is that as we as we recognize the fact that if we're going in thinking that we're going to convince people to become followers of Christ, we are just setting ourselves up from failure from day one. So our job is not to go in and convince people to to accept Christ. Our job is to go in and set up places where people can listen and learn from God. And where does God speak? He speaks in his word. Where does he, where does he live? He lives in his people. And, and those, are, those are the things that we have to begin to realize is that the relationships that we as believers have with God are important to the well-being of people who don't know God yet. Mm-hmm. And as we understand, our job is to create the environment so that God can speak to people. And through his word, through, through the relationships he has, the changed lives that have come in the wake of missionary movements, all of those things are there. And we, we really haven't done a good job of training people how to be conspicuously spiritual without being obnoxiously religious, and how then to understand that our, our job is to set the table. And when God shows up at the table, things happen that we never expected to happen. Absolutely. And, and, you know, going back to really at the beginning where you're saying that one of the principles of clandestine missions is that you have to do everything through relationship and be able to build that access by who you know. And especially now that there's so much, you know, warring tribal kind of things going on right now, it's a lot of, you know, and it seems like to me, this is why it's so important for the future of missions to, to realize completely that DMM is going to have to be the way that we get them in because DMM is focused all on the inside leader. Would you agree about that? 
Yeah, DMM is focused on making disciples, and, and that making disciple process is a leadership development process also. Mm-hmm. And so for me, there is no distinction between disciple making and leadership development. They're the one and the same thing. Right. But the focus is who is the leader? Mm-hmm. In, in, in spiritual matters, God is the leader. In business matters, the president or the head of the organization is the, is the leader. And what we have to come to an understanding is, is that who do we really work for? Do we work for an organization or do we work for God? Mm-hmm. And, and we need to be involved with organizations that understand the organization is, is a boat that we're floating in, but the ocean we're floating in is God. And that, mm-hmm. that we, are, we are about helping people understand how to survive and live in connection with their creator and how to expand that relationship with the creator to more and more people around you, that it becomes a community of Christ, which we call a church and becomes a network of churches that we may call the denomination or association of churches. But the whole perspective is an understanding that health is seen by replication. Disciples are making new disciples. Leaders are making new leaders. Churches are establishing new churches. Groups of churches are establishing new groups of churches. And denominations are establishing actually even other denominations than themselves. If we're married to our theology and doctrine, we're not going to be very successful in in clandestine missions because the, the, the Holy Spirit is just going to shake everything up and make it all different than what you expect it to be you're going to have friends and neighbors and colleagues you never dreamed you would have as God transformed people. I've literally sat beside people who killed Christians for 40 years and are now active in spreading the gospel as mm-hmm. a Christian. Right. And yet they're still known as the guy who killed millions of people. It's very still Paul, known as the apostle. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's uh, but, but these, these are guys that are really, were really, really scary. Uh, demon-possessed warriors and are now born again in Christ and, and are actively working with the knowledge they had from, from their previous life to see people out of that life come to Christ and become active in moving people from the demonic possession of these wars and what happens in wars to a place of love and life in the light of Jesus Christ. And those are hard things for people who've never been there to, to even recognize that, that a murder of thousands can become an evangelist to tens of thousands. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's one of the things that just continues to just amaze me as I would have never bet you one penny that this guy would have ever been worth anything in kingdom work. And now they've, they've started sometimes thousands of churches mm-hmm. out of coming out of that, that background of being harmful and, and evil in, in regard to being an attacker of the church rather than a planter of churches. So when we're working clandestine missions, the one thing that's kind of normal is we see signs and wonders. Mm-hmm. And, and I grew up in a denomination that basically taught that all of that had stopped with the apostles it didn't take me long working in clandestine missions to realize that God had not stopped doing signs and wonders. Matter of fact, that is probably the most prominent way you get access into these communities is God steps in and does something you never thought of, never seen before, 
never even realized he was going to do. And, and if you're not aware of it and you don't see it, you miss the opportunity to become friends and neighbors with people who are going to change the world. And that's, that's part of what we have to do. We have to be sensitive to the spirit, sensitive to the things that are moving, sensitive to the people that are in those situations and recognize that our role, our role is building environments where people can encounter God face to face. So I don't know what you can and cannot say, but is there any stories right now of some ways in which God's working in a miraculous way that you can share at this point? The stories out of Afghanistan have not started surfacing yet. I mean, this is really too, too new. I mean, the guys on the ground are hearing them. They haven't percolated up to leadership levels that I'm at, but they will get there. But in, in previous settings, uh, we've just seen things uh, and I've experienced things. I mean, I, I've been actively hunted in countries and literally set on a train the only white guy and have the people actively hunt me, not see me on the train. And they walked by me a dozen times and they were actively looking for me to kill me. And they just never looked at me. It's so strange to watch a guy walking at you with a Kalashnikov and he, and he looks up to look at you and he looks the other direction and walks past you looking the other direction and never sees you. And when you get off the train, they're complaining that whoever said a white guy was on this train was lying to them. I mean, that has happened to me. Uh, I have been, I have been taken off of a train one time. I was going to be beheaded and, and a CNN crew showed up. And out of that, the police showed up because they didn't want a, a Westerner being, being executed on CNN. Uh, they beat me, took everything I had and threw me out in the street and said, uh, if you're still here at dark, you'll get shot because there's a, there's a shoot on site curfew. And it takes me eight weeks to make my way to a safe area that I could get back home. And those are, those are just part and parcel of, of living in this kind of environment. And you begin to realize that, I mean, the thing that I learned from those encounters, what I'm not going to live a day less than God wants me to live. And I'm not going to live a day longer than he wants me to live. My, my life is literally in the hands of God. And if I recognize that and live with that, it takes away a lot of the fear. It doesn't take away all the fear but it takes away the paralyzing fear that you can get into in these kind of environments because you're seeing God time and time again, rescue you from those in kind of environments. And I mean, I've lost track of how many times that I should have been dead and wasn't. I mean, just, just the fact that God would move in and ordinary people, he, he would rescue me, not with Christians, but with ordinary people in those in those parts of the world that you would say you would not have any friends, but it's interesting when, when you're, when you're beaten and bloody and dying, people help you. And that's, that's just, just part of human nature in most cases. And I've been in places where, where they would hide me and not tell the government I was there in, in certain countries that I'm not going to, I'm not going to mention these, these are kind of normal things for those of us who've lived and worked in those environments. And it's happening right now all over the Middle East, right? particularly in Afghanistan and Pakistan, Tajikistan. The, these places where we're trying to move people and get them to safe harbors in order to, to move forward in their, in their processing to, to move to a safe country to live and work. 
And I think what you're, it's so true what you're saying, David, you know, when you see God protect you and, and, and work in miraculous ways, it builds up your faith to be able to, like you said, that I'm alive because God wants me to be alive. And, you know, my, my life is in his hands. And as you say, that reduces some of the fear, obviously not all of it, but, but some of the fear because there has been a, a faithfulness of how he's been working through that. And we see that in the scriptures of Daniel and David, where they're like, well, now we're in this new particular problem, but Hey, God helped us in the past. He's going to help us again now. And, you know, and this is just a, a word to, I, I feel to my Christian brothers and sisters in North America and other places, you know, perhaps we have not built up our faith in this era because we have not moved forward and allowed God to show himself strong in some of our situations and therefore to be able to take courage to continue, um, you know, what he's called us to do. And there's even and a, I think there's a stronger statement than even that is that, that faith is obeying God regardless of personal consequences. Yes. I'm going to do what God calls me to do, even if it takes me to my death. I'm going to do what God calls me to do. Even in the terror of the moment, he will take it and make it something important that changes the lives, not only of my, of my own life, but the lives of the people around me and the faith that they see that, that God is taking care of in, uh, in situations. I, I've, I've been seriously wounded in, in situations and, and watch the people look at the wounds that I have heal and say, whoa, who are you? I said, I'm, I'm not anybody. Well, that wound should have killed you. And I said, well, uh, I didn't know that, but I'm okay now. You know, I can, I can move <laughs> and I can walk again. And, and, it, and, it, and it happened in a matter of a few days when I should have been laying in the hospital probably for half a year type of thing. And those, those are the things that, that we, we see regularly in clandestine missions that, that God is at work. And when he is at work and we acknowledge he's at work, he uses us in different ways to see and do different things than we've ever dreamed of before. The stories that are going to come out of Afghanistan are going to be incredible stories for us to hear and read about. Uh, I think a lot of those stories are going to have to be held back for a few years in order to save uh, or keep people safe who are still working in that environment and, and working in clandestine areas in that environment. And we have to recognize that the, the world is not what it was in the 1950s. I mean, the, the missions of the 1950s are gone. The missions of the 1960s are gone. The mission of the, of the 1920s or, is, or the 2020s now is, is a different kind of missions. It's a different world. Communications is there. We've got the internet. I mean, back in, back in the 80s and early 90s, I mean, I was, smuggling, I was smuggling satellite phones in order to keep communications going. And back then, a satellite phone had a, a dish antenna that was 18 inches across. You I, put it out and fan it open. And <laughs> in I, order to, some of them had you need a little suitcase to go. With it. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, then I remember when, when the first time that I got a satellite phone that I could hold in my hand, but you know, it was, it was big as a brick holding my hand. And then the last satellite phone I had was like, it was like a little flip phone just with a little bit larger antenna on it. But I, I could stand in the middle of anywhere on the planet and, and talk to my wife in, in Texas. 
And that was uh, that was a huge step forward. And those those are the those technological advantages that we have today are certainly helping us be a lot smarter about our communications and a lot more open with people we need to communicate with. It's difficult to tap satellite phones, uh, if not impossible. So well, it's uh, and, and the thing is, is that you know, uh, as a side note, a lot of you know people nowadays want to really you know, hate on technology and all that different type of stuff that nowadays it's been used for so much bad, but really it also, it's just a tool and we can be able to do, like you said, miraculous things, things that we haven't been able to do before now that we have these tools in hand. So David, you are just starting to open up what, when my next question says, now that this has happened inside of Middle East, how do you think that will change the way that we need to go about doing missions in the Middle East? in the preceding years? Well, it's going to have to change in several things. One of the things that can happen is that countries can turn off the internet. I mean, Mm -hmm. every country has a node that comes to them and that internet spreads out from that node. Those nodes can be shut down so that no one in the country or no one in the region can get internet. And so part of what we want to see is that the internet becomes a satellite process, not, not a wired process. Mm -hmm. And once we understand that we can, we can beam good quality internet via satellite to anyone, and we spend the money and put up the, put up the satellites that can reach into these areas, then the next issue is satellite reception. And used to that was a dish antenna. Well, that's no longer the case. Now it's a button antenna. And, and things are just getting better and better in technology all the time. But that also doesn't mean that people don't recognize modern technology. People who see modern technology and understand modern technology are going to know what it is that you have. Uh, but it's still, it's still going to be easier to move, easier to conceal, easier to, to make look different than what people expect. Harder to, to disconnect look. you. Yeah, harder to get disconnected. I mean, I, I, I've been totally amazed when standing in incredibly dangerous, fluid environments and be talking to my family uh, halfway around the world and telling, giving them a report of where I am and what I've been doing for that day and my next steps so they could sit there on a map and plot out where I was on a day-to-day basis because I was able to call them on a day-to-day basis from countries that had no cell phone systems mm-hmm. in those days. And, and yet we had, they had satellite was everywhere. It was already hanging up there. Motorola put them up and we were using them. Now, was it, was it cheap? No, it was not cheap. My phone bill often ran into the thousands of dollars a month mm-hmm. in those days. Right. And those are, those are the things that the cost of technology, though, has just come to, to as, about as close to zero better. as you can get. <laughs> it's a little bit just better. <laughs> a, just about as close to zero as you can get is, is what it looks like on our budgets today. But that doesn't change the fact that if you're investing in a satellite phone, you're still investing thousands, not hundreds. And you're, and you're, you know, the, the cost of that equipment is, is more expensive, but the cost of maintaining and keeping that equipment is, is easier than, and less than what it was in, into the older days. And that's going to continue to upgrade and improve the, the better the satellites get, the better the phones get, the better the networks get, and they're going to realize it's actually cheaper to put up a satellite than it is to put in a, a cell network. Sure. And, and maintain it because then you don't have all that on-ground infrastructure that people tear up in wars. 
I mean, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I mean, if or you want to tap into wanna... and slow down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's all kinds of things going on that uh, that are that are really great great things, and technology has been one of the biggest things that that we've all dealt with, and, and just the technology of how we move the Word of God. I mean, I remember the first time that I had the Bible on a thumb drive. And I was taking it in on a thumb drive and people were printing it from that thumb drive off of their laptops on a little computer printer and distributing the gospel from that thumb drive. And no one looks at two times at a thumb drive. And not only that, in those days, I had encrypted parts of that drive that were not visible to operating systems unless you had the right software on your system to see that part of the. And so we were moving things back and forth all the time on thumb drives. Then we started moving them inside of, of other equipment that was programmable, but not a thumb drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so there, I mean, like SIM cards, <laughs> you can, you can program and put things on SIM cards and move them around. These are all the technologies that continue to develop and continue to grow. And, and, and boy, the internet is absolutely an incredible resource to us. The fact that you and I are sitting here talking now, we're, we're 1,500 miles apart, but uh, we've got good communications, good video, good everything. Mm-hmm. The reality is uh, the next two conferences I have today, one of them is going to be in, in the Eastern Hemisphere. The other one is going to be in the Western Hemisphere, and they're going to be more like 10,000 miles apart. Right. And, and, and we'll be talking the same as you and I are talking right now. And those are absolutely amazing things for those of us who have, who have grown up in a world where, where not only was technology disapproved of, it was hard to get. And now we're in a, in a world where almost everyone takes it, for, takes it for granted that, hey, we are going to have video conferencing. And, and this isn't Star Wars. This is, this is North America in, in, in 2021 and the world in 2021. The, the interesting part is uh, I go to a conference every other year that it's all about technology and missions. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's amazing the things that every year, the new things that are coming out to assist us in moving the gospel using technology. And, and I really want to encourage listeners, you know, especially if you're in a North American context, but anywhere you know, let's get a vision for how we can be able to assist missions by becoming innovators within these different fields. You know, there's the choice of making forward and, you know, being able to make forward progress into missions isn't just somebody who can pray and somebody who can, you know, preach the word, but somebody who can be able to help develop technologies so that missionaries can be able to operate the way that they need to within these particular contexts. And so thereby the gifts and the talents that we all have can be able to forward the great commission into these areas. So thank you so much guys for listening to the CDM podcast. Thank you for supporting it. Remember we now have an app out there, the contagious disciple making app, look for the contagious disciple making app. It's free. You can download that and have access to this podcast and Uh, all of our other resources to be able to help you know how to see a disciple making movement in your area of the world. And also like, share, rate, and review this podcast and the app for us so that we can be able to get the word out to other people on this matter. Thank you so much and go and make disciples. 
Thanks for listening to the CDM podcast. To hear part two, become a supporter on our Patreon page. You can find the link in the description. For coaching or other resources, connect with us at contagiousdisciplemaking.com.